I want you to take your Bibles and thank the Lord for your Bible. Amen? Amen. This is the Word of God. Please remember that. This is not just a piece of paper or a novel just to have fun with. This is the Word of God. Please remember that. And that's what we want to look at today. Now we're going to pick up on our verse-by-verse exposition of 1 Corinthians at verse 1 of chapter 3. I want you to be sure you open your Bible and follow along. Now last time we stopped at verse 16 of chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. There Paul was explaining the fact that the wisdom of God that was revealed in the message of the cross, the wisdom of God that was revealed in the message of the cross had at least two levels as far as its content and its understanding was concerned. Milk for babies and the meat or the deep things for the mature. We have to understand that. Not every Christian is on the spiritual level to understand everything in the Bible It depends upon their spiritual maturity. Paul brings that out very clearly in these passages. Now, also please remember the context. Paul was explaining the root cause for the divisions, the factions in the church. The Corinthians were living as infants in Christ. Babes in Christ. Because they had not digested the fact that the gospel did not only speak about justification, that is, how a person is to be saved, but it also speaks about sanctification, how a person is to live after they're saved. But it appears that the Corinthians were stuck only on justification. They were saved, and that was all for them. Save, stuck. That's true. They were at the point of justification, but not sanctification. They only wanted to hear about how one was to be saved, but not how the saved was supposed to live. In a word, they were saved, but they were living as though they were not. That's the condition that Paul is addressing. In other words, they had misunderstood the nature of the message of the cross. They had misunderstood the message of the gospel. So now in chapter 3, he goes on to show that the divisions were also caused because of the misunderstanding of the Christian ministry. Not only did they misunderstand the message, they also misunderstood the nature of the ministry. Here then, the word of God, beginning at verse 1, 1 Corinthians 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men. Now in context, in chapter 2, it's mean those who have the spirit. I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but I can only speak to you as men of flesh. In other words, people who did not have the Spirit. That's the contrast. As to infants in Christ. In other words, that's what you were demonstrating. 
in the way you lived. You were babies in Christ. You were infants. Your behavior was infantile. Now, of course, he is alluding to his first visit at Corinth, the first time that he went to them. That's when he first proclaimed the message of the cross of Christ, a message to which they responded in a positive way, and they had become believers in Christ. He continues, verse 2, At that time, you have to put that in, into the context, I gave you milk to drink. That's what babies have. And in that context, it was the proper thing to do. That's all they could take. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. For you were not yet able to receive it. Now, that is not a condemnation here. That is not a criticism. That's a matter of fact. When I first came and you first received the gospel, I had to give you milk because that's all you could receive at that time because you had just placed faith in Jesus Christ. He calls the initial truth of the gospel then milk. And you'll see he calls the deep things of God, of the gospel, solid food. They were not able to handle this solid food at such an early stage in the Christian life. They couldn't understand it, which is quite understandable. It was expected, in fact because of the fact that they were young in the faith. They were babes in Christ. However, some time has elapsed now. There's a disagreement between how long the times. It could be as many as five years, as little as two years. We don't know for sure, but it was a period of time. Now notice what he says. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. Now he begins to criticize. Now he begins to confront them with their lack of spiritual growth. The idea is you should be able to understand, but even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. Now, we like to use the word carnal here, but in context it means you are still acting as though you are not saved. That's what he's talking about. This is a mild rebuke on the part of the apostle. To paraphrase, he was saying something like this. Even now, when you should be at least an adolescent in your faith, and know a little bit more than babies, you're still acting as though you were not saved. And therefore, you are still unable to live out the word of God in your lives. You're behaving like people who do not have the Holy Spirit living in you, and who has regenerated you when you place faith in Christ. In other words, they were stunted in their spiritual growth. They had some age, some time, as far as spiritual life is concerned, but they had no growth. So see, that's why time as a Christian does not necessarily mean growth. Now, time is necessary for growth, but you could have time without growth. Now, he explains the reason for this in the next verse. Notice what he says now. Look at the Word of God. For, reason, that's for, because 
there is jealousy and strife among you. He's giving the reason now why he's calling these Christians who've been saved for some years, babes in Christ, who are living as though they were not saved. Because there is jealousy and strife among you. If that is the case, are you not fleshly? This is a rhetorical question. Of course you are. You're living as though you don't have the spirit. Are you not walking like mere men? Are you not walking like people who do not have the Spirit of God in you? That's what you're doing. Why? Because there's jealousy and strife among you. In other words, the proof, as they say, is in the eating. You could get up and say everything you like, but let me see what you're doing. Jealousy and strife are characteristics of the ungenerate life. Therefore, even though you may claim to be and in fact are Christians, if these traits are present in your lives, you are in fact living as though you have not been saved. You have the Spirit of God, but you're acting as though you don't. Because jealousy and strife are fruits of the flesh, not fruit of the Spirit. But he presents his point even further, verse 4. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Rhetorical question again. He's saying, now, when you're trying to make these divisions among, based on the leadership of the church, the preachers in the church, and how they can preach and how they can preach, because that's what it is. We'll see more of that before. He says, that's fleshly. In other words, that's what the unsaved people do. You shouldn't do that. Boy, I'm glad this is written. Because if I got up here and say that, we all think I'm preaching what I want to say. <laughs> You're behaving like the unsaved when you start to take one preacher and compare or contrast him to the other. That's unsaved behavior. That's unregenerate behavior. That's behavior that is not motivated by the Holy Spirit. You're just as though you're not a believer. Now, he says, I got to explain this to you. The same way he explained the nature of the message. You see, it's, many times we use terms we, we don't understand really. That's why he had to understand, he had to describe what the message is. Being the wisdom of God demonstrated in that foolish message of the cross about you could only be saved by the blood of somebody who was executed, had capital punishment put, executed upon him. That's a foolish message to the unsaved. But that's the wisdom of God. He had to explain the nature of the message. Now he says, I've got to explain to you the nature of the ministry. Because you're living in the church as though you're not a Christian. Verse 5. What then is Apollos? Remember, Apollos was the flourishing preacher. He's the one that Aquila and Priscilla had to put aside and get the content right, although he had the flourish and the oomph. He didn't have the content. He got it right, though, because he continued the ministry. What then is Apollos? And who is Paul? Or what is Paul? And let me back up. I don't want to make him say he, has, he isn't asking who is Paul or who is Paul. He says what? 
because he's trying to prove a point here. We are servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one of us. Now, this is the context now. You've got to see it. The Corinthians were regarding the ministers and servants of the gospel as though they were lords, as though they were the rulers or the owners of the gospel. Paul is saying that's not so. Apollos and Paul and, of course, Cephas, Peter, are servants. They're servants whom God, the Lord, the owner of the message, used to present the gospel message to them. God, not the preachers, was the owners, the Lord of the ministry. You are focusing, putting your eye on the servants. Your eye shouldn't be on the servants. Your eye should be on the one they serve. He's saying here, God, the one who devised the message, gave them, the servants, the privilege and opportunity to be used of him for this divine purpose. He will later explain that these men were actually gifts of God to the church. They were the gifts of man that God gave to the church. But they didn't own the church. The church didn't belong to them. They didn't own the message. They had no right to change the message. They had no right to make it look as though they were the owners of the gospel or the owners of the church. They were the servants of God to the church. They were not the lords of the message or of the church. He explains it further in verse 6. I planted. Apollos watered. But God was causing the growth. You see, now, this was in the past tense, and he's talking about what happened when he came. I preached, Paulus preached, but you know all the blessings you saw? It wasn't me or Paulus who did it. It was God who was doing it. Not us, but God. Notice carefully. Paul is saying that when it comes to the ministry, it is not the servants or workers who really count. It's God. That's what he's saying. Why? Because they, the workers, cannot produce any fruit. We could preach, we could holler, we could shout, we could do anything. We could use all kinds of songs and everything to work on your emotions and everything else. But we can't give no grease. The only one who can do it is God. But you see, the Corinthians were doing just the opposite. They were praising the servants and forgetting about God altogether. Boy, look what Pastor Terrence did. Look all of them people. Boy, Brother Terrence, he is such a great and mighty preacher. And he's so handsome. <laughs> Boy, you know what we can do without Brother Terrence? You ever hear anything like that? Sure you do. As though the ministry depended upon the servant. It doesn't. It depends upon God. Look at verse 7. He makes it clear. So then, this is a sort of a semi-conclusion. Neither the one who plants 
nor the one who waters is anything. Isn't that something? <laughs> I, I can get like some of the women who don't like Paul. A lot of women don't like Paul, you know. I won't go in that bar, though. Paul said, you preachers ain't nothing. Now, you talk about something that sort of will deflate your ego. Is this. You're nothing. This isn't anything. But who is the all-important one? It's God who causes the growth. Please don't get your eyes of that fact. Any good thing, anything that is done for God here, God does it. Now, that doesn't mean that we do not show appreciation for the ones he uses. But please, don't make it our priority. We just finished thanking the deacons and security guards. We need to thank God too for giving us that parking lot. True or false? That's what's that. But I just want to show something now. You know, we look at that and I have people come to me, what are you going to do with that lot? Look at here. Just rest. What are you going to do with that? Maybe we should say, hey, Lord, thank you for giving us that. Just help us to do what you want us to do with it. Paul is saying to these infantile believers, get your eyes of the preacher and put them on God. Praise God, he's saying, for what is happening in the ministry. Don't praise the ministry and forget God. Why? Because that only leads to jealousy, favoritism, and factions in the church. Your behavior is childish. Now, don't let's forget the flip side of this teaching. Not only must the people not put the preacher on the pedestal, but neither should the preacher put himself on the pedestal. Well, <laughs> Brad, <laughs> this is biblical. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah got the platform and he put it before the people and he stood up and he preached the word. So this biblical. <laughs> but he's talking as far as praise and glory is concerned. You see, the underlying principle of this, God does not share his glory with anyone, including the preacher or the pastor. So whether the people or the preacher does it, the result is the same. Whenever a servant seeks to glorify himself rather than God in the ministry, he can only be the cause of instigating strife, favoritism, and jealousy in the assembly of God's people. Now, Paul is going to show in a moment how God responds to such situations. Let me tell you, he doesn't pull any punches. But let's go to verse 8 now. Because it continues to explain the nature of the ministry, the gospel ministry. He says, now, he who plants and he who waters are one. He said, ain't nothing but the one. Now, when he says that, he's saying that in comparison to God. Remember that. We're not trying to say and demean the pastors and the preachers and all of that. Please, let's get that in context. I'm just talking when he compares it to God. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. 
meaning that we have the same goal, same objective, same Lord. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. He's explaining the nature of the ministry. There are different ministries with different abilities. Our rewards will be given according to the abilities God has given us. As he says in Ephesians, according to the measure of the gift of grace. The Corinthians didn't understand this truth. They were pitting one preacher against the other according to their oratory skills, even according to their looks. Because later on, we're going to say, now Paul is an ugly man. They actually say that. But Paul corrects this spiritually immature behavior. He says, all ministers of the gospel are of equal worth and value in the sight of God. None is better or more important than the other. We are all servants, not lords, over the ministry or the people of God. They all serve the same Lord, he says. However, and he explains this very carefully, even though this is true, the servants will receive different rewards based on the nature of their ministry and faithfulness to the foundation that was laid. And that is Christ crucified. And what he's trying now, you've got to see it in context. Christ's crucifixion is a picture of humility. He didn't die in a way to be glorified through that death. It was humiliating. That's what he's trying to point out here as far as the, the minister is concerned. He cannot glorify himself and uplift himself in the ministry. He must uplift the Lord. He must take a place of humility as a servant to Jesus Christ. Verse 9. He's going to explain this later as we go through it. This is, this is a passage you've got to go through slowly to understand. We misinterpret this passage. We take this passage and read it and only put it to our own personal lives. But in context, this is written to the church and it's written to the leaders of the church. Notice verse 9 now. For we, now in context, that's not speaking about all believers. Now it's true of all believers, but in context it's speaking of Apollos and Cephas and Paul. We are God's, notice, fellow workers. That is, partners in the ministry. We're not competitors. We're not competing with one another. We are God's fellow workers, working for the same Lord to accomplish the same purpose. Who are we working with? He says, you are God's field. You are God's building. In other words, you the ground we're tilling to produce fruit. We could till it, but only God could give the fruit. We can build, but it's got to be sure, be built on the right foundation. And he, he sort of switches metaphors or illustrations, but the point is the same. Believers, now in the context that's the local church, belong to God, not to his servants. The church does not belong to the pastor. It does not belong to the preacher. It belongs to Jesus Christ. It belongs to God. And so Paul now personalizes this teaching and refers to himself now, his own role in establishing the church at Corinth as a laborer or a field hand for God. 
He says in verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given to me. This is the beautiful teaching here about the abilities God gives us. He gives us gifts that we are to use in according with the ability that God has given us in our gift. Like a wise master builder. Keep that term in mind. He just wasn't any kind of a builder. He was a wise one. I laid the foundation. And another is building on it. See now, catch that. He's talking in the present tense. As he was writing this letter, there was another preacher in Corinth who was preaching the gospel where he once preached. That was his concern. He says, I laid a foundation and right now there's somebody else there. He's not talking about Apollos or Cephas. We're going to see that. Somebody is else there. He's building on the foundation that I laid. And so he's saying that enabled by the grace of God, he had laid the foundation of the establishment of the church. When I was doing this, I was thinking of Brother Vish. He laid the foundation for this church. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I was reading it, I prayed, I said, God, please help me from not ever going away from that foundation laid by Pastor Vish. Because God gives me a warning. If I do it, you're going to see in a moment. But Paul is saying, now enabled by the grace of God, he laid the foundation for the establishment of the church at Corinth. In other words, he was the one God used to proclaim the message of the cross of Christ to the Corinthians. That was the foundation. Now, however, he says, another is presently building on it, meaning that some other teacher has come after him and was at that very moment ministering to the Corinthians. And he has a concern because of what he sees the church is doing. He has a concern because he's looking at the lifestyle of the believers. He laid a foundation. Somebody is coming and building on that. Paul is inspecting. And all he sees is infantile Christians. Christians who are stuck at the cross and know nothing of the resurrection. Notice what he says now. Each man must be careful how he builds on it. That's a warning to that preacher. You better be careful of what you're doing at the church where I laid the foundation. Be careful. He's saying to this unnamed preacher, be careful little mouth what you say. Don't erect a superstructure on the foundation I laid that would deny or disregard the core and essence of the gospel. And be especially careful that you don't try to lay your own foundation. That was a strong warning to me, personally. In fact, it's a warning to all preachers who would dare to assume the leadership of the people of God. You see, that's why... I have such a problem when churches begin because somebody feels disgruntled and then they go start another church. I got a problem with that. I got serious problems with that. I don't think that's a proper foundation upon which a church should be built. Disgruntlement against the preacher. I had a friend. He was invited to come over here to Nassau because Four families of a certain church 
didn't like what was going on in a certain church. They didn't like the preacher. I ain't talking about myself now. Right? <laughs> At least not yet, anyway. And so they rented a little shop space to start a church. And they invited one of my best friends from the United States to come over to pastor that church. He's a very good friend of mine. And he came and he sat down in my office and he says, but Al and I come over here to pastor this church and I really expect your help. I said, not me. I said, I will not support you. You're my friend. I says, where's your wife? He said, my wife over there. She can be here. No. I said, no, no, no. You come over here to start a church with four families because they don't like what a preacher or what is going on in another church? And you want my support? No way. Now, he didn't like that, but I don't care if he didn't like it. He was wrong as far as I was concerned. As far as I was concerned, he was outside the will of God. I don't care how much he told me he believed God brought him here. God does not bless any individual who is going to try to encourage people who have divided a church. I don't believe that's true. You're going to see that from this passage. Each man must be careful how he builds on it. Be careful what you do, especially how you handle the gospel. That's what Paul is. Paul is warning then, don't you dare take your eyes of Christ and put it on yourself, or even don't put it on the people. Because if you put your eyes on you or the people, you're going to serve you and you're going to serve the people, but you're not going to serve me. You see, we preachers like to hear we're so great. Now, I know you can't help saying that about me, but you know, you gotta be here. <laughs> but we like to hear that. Don't you like to say, we like to hear that. We like to, boy, that was a good message. That's why many times now I've stopped actually going to the front of the door at the church. I'm serious. Because you see, it's easy to give me a big head. And not much bigger. No, 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 that's not nice. I have a problem handling compliments. I'm serious. I start to believe that the, what the people are saying, they really mean it. Anyway, you better go back to the Bible. Verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation. I know no man here. Again, please, it's in the context of the preachers. He's talking about himself. He's talking about Apollos. He's talking about Cephas and this unnamed preacher. Now, of course, it is also true universally. But don't let's take it out of the context. Otherwise, we lose the thrust of the message. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's talking about the foundation he laid at Corinth. No one can change that foundation. That was Jesus Christ. And how was it laid? Through the preaching of the cross. The preaching of Christ crucified. This tells me that every local church must be built on this truth. The truth of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If it's built on any other doctrine, it's not a church. The Corinthian church then is founded upon the wisdom of God as manifested in the death of Christ on the cross for the sins of the mankind. No one was dare to alter or deny any or to do any renovations on this foundation. 
Paul is, of course, explaining at the same time the message of the cross of Christ that it does not only mean that Christ died, and that's what he's going to show later concerning the Spirit of God living within us. But now he says here, nonetheless, that we must always remember that the foundation of the gospel message is the crucified Christ. Paul is trying to teach the Corinthians truth that will take them out of the babe in Christ stage. Now don't get that, don't lose that. He is saying all this because he wants to move them out of infancy into maturity. He explains that there are three kinds of builders in this passage that we'll see. And there are different kinds of materials. The kind of builders use certain kinds of materials. Now we go to this passage many times, we apply it to ourselves about hay, wood, and stubble, and all of those things, and we put it now in personal life. That's okay. But that's not the primary point of this passage. The primary point of this passage is to show that the true builders of the church uses certain kinds of materials to build. Those who are not the true builders of the church use different kinds of materials. Now, they might be Christians. They, might, they will be saved. But their ministry is going to be destroyed. The fruit, the reward for the ministry will be lost. That's what he's about to say. Verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. Now, please, keep this in context or you miss it. He's talking about what preachers and pastors do in a local church. Each man's work will become evident. What a preacher, a teacher, a preacher does in a local church. The kind of work he does, the kind of ministry, the quality of the ministry he does will one day be manifested. For the day will show it. Because it is to be revealed, manifested, exposed with fire. And the fire itself will detest the quality of each man's work. Now this has nothing to do with hell. See, right away we start to shift about eternal destiny. This is not talking about eternal destiny, heaven or hell. This talks about the examination of our ministry and the kind of message we preach. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. The day here is the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne judgment. As I say, we often apply these verses in the life of the individual believer in a general way with the idea that God will test all of our life along these lines. Although that might be true as an example, that's not the teaching of this passage. The specific contextual reference is the ministry of preachers, teachers, or pastors within the local church. That's why I've entitled this message, Warning to the Preacher. He is warning preachers and teachers of the word to be careful how they handle the word of God because they would have to answer to God directly for their ministry. And he will not compromise on his judgment. This is one of the most fearful messages I had to make up for a long time. You know what James says about the preacher or the teacher? Listen to his words in James chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers. My brethren, 
knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Do you get that? He's talking about those who handle the word of God. Well, you just think getting up here and reading and saying all kinds of stuff as it goes, but uh-uh-uh. You're going to stand before the beamer one day and God is going to examine everything that you said, everything that I said. And it's going to be as though we're going through fire. A purifying thing. Now this is not purgatory here. This has to do with the ministry and determining the kind of gifts we get. The gold, the silver, and costly stones could refer to the enduring quality of the builder's work or it could refer to the quality of the doctrine that is preached. I believe that both are involved. But notice, it's the quality, not the quantity of the work that will determine the reward. It's not how much we do, it is what we do. So whether your church has one bus or 100 doesn't make a difference. Whether you could get up in here and say, I baptized 5,000 people or I baptized one, the numbers don't matter. What is the fruit that lasts? He's talking to believers in Christ, not unbelievers, and especially the preacher. Verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, that means build on the foundation that was laid, the foundation of the message of the Christ crucified. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward, but it's got to remain. Just its presence isn't enough. It's got to be enduring. It's got to stay. This is the wise or the expert builder here. His work must remain to endure the fiery testing of the beamer. In other words, only what is done for Christ will last. Is that true? But that's only half true. We can do a lot of things for Christ just to get praise. The actual right phrase should be, only what's done for Christ, by Christ, in us will last. Only what's done for Christ, by Christ, in us will last. It's the quality, not the quantity. In verse 10, Paul calls himself a wise master builder. So what he's saying is, what will remain is described as gold, silver, and precious stones. Why? Because these items, when they go through fire, they're purified, not destroyed. The quality is demonstrated. But now when you put wood, hay, and stubble through the fire, you don't have nothing left. That's what he means by it must remain. Now in context, again, it refers to the accurate preaching and teaching of the word of God, building on the foundation of the word of the cross that reveals and manifests the wisdom of God. In other words, when the word of God is handled, what must be seen is the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. Paul then makes it clear that he's not speaking of a person's eternal destiny, but rather eternal rewards. Notice what he says in verse 15. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Now there's been so much misinterpretation of this passage. If any man's ministry 
is burned up, does not stand the test, he will suffer loss. Now notice, it doesn't mean that he is going to lose something he had. It means he will lose what he could have had. You understand what I'm saying? That's what the loss is here. The loss is not something he had. It is something he could have had. But he himself will be saved yet as through fire. This is the unwise builder. He uses building materials that will not stand the test of fire, the wood, the hay, or the straw. You listen to your TV, and you look at some of the preachers, and you will hear a lot of hay, wood, and straw preaching. You see, he's talking about a builder who cheats the owner. I want this $50 a foot piece of wood. So he goes to Charlie and he buys a $15 feet of wood. See? He paints it. He look, make it look just like the $50. And he puts it in the building. But then the examiner comes. And he starts to examine. And this examiner at the Benima, he ain't gonna miss nothing. He ain't get paid under the table. He ain't gonna miss nothing. He's gonna know my motivation for preaching. He's gonna examine and see whether or not I was really preaching this. He's not gonna miss anything. I can say, oh yeah, man, I preach on First Corinthians, and boy, listen, I, I mean, I had some good words to you. Should hear some of those words. I got them from Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> now only those of you who watch that will know what I'm talking about. He gives his word all the time. I learned the motivational speaker from the best motivational speaker. Oh boy, yeah man. You say, hmm. But you didn't preach the word. And it's not your speech. It's not your oratory that counts. It's the word. This is an exceedingly solemn and troubling verse for me. This presents the truth, the possibility that I could minister the word here at Calvary Bible Church for 18 years and don't make an impact for the kingdom of God at all if this hasn't been preached. That's a, that's a troubling thing. See, Paul isn't pulling any punches here. Even as he did not when he spoke about the nature of the message of the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. No one is to change this message. In fact, he says, if anybody preaches another gospel, let him go to hell. That's what let him be anathema means. That's how strong Paul is in saying, you better preach this gospel, not your own. He's making that same point here. The ministry belongs to God. We should never think that it belongs to us. And if we ever do the ministry in such a way that causes divisions or factions because the preacher is trying to make brownie points for himself, either by using it to make him look good or to give him a name in order to win the favor of those who don't want to hear it, this is what he says, and I'm going to stop at this point because this is getting too convicting for me. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Now, please don't take this out of context. 
Your individual body as a believer and mine is the temple of God. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the local church. Do you not know that you are, this you is in plural here, that's how we know that, the you is plural. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now I'll read the verse, and then I'll stop, and I'll come back to this next week. Look at verse 17. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will what? The destroyer of the unity of the church of Jesus Christ will be destroyed by the owner and the Lord of the church, God himself. That's a scary thing. For God to say to any preacher, any pastor, if you cause the unity of the church of Christ to be fractured, that's what he means by destroying the church in the context. See, we lose that, but that's what he's talking about. He's going to say that the Christian council can destroy you. He isn't saying the elders can destroy you. He's saying you are touching what belongs to me. You are touching my home. You are touching my dwelling place. And if you come into this and you're going to cause divisions, I will destroy you myself. I think this is a point for me to say, Amen. And leave it for the Spirit of God to bring to my heart and the heart of every preacher of the Word of God. Please bow with me. We'll pick it up next week, Lord willing. Father, this has been a very difficult passage of Scripture for me, but I thank you for it. Because it has caused me once again to commit myself to proclaiming the Word of God for what it is. The Word of God and not the Word of man. My prayer today is, Father, that you would help me, please help me, to be faithful to that calling. Help me always to realize that this body of believers belongs to you, not to me or to any other preacher. And help us, our Father, to realize the importance of maintaining unity, but a unity that is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, not on the will of man. Help us, Lord, to be faithful, because we know then you will give qualitative increase in his assembly. And all of God's people said, Amen.